Hey guys, this is Tho Bishop of Radio Rothbard, and I want to let you guys know about two great events we have coming up soon. The first is on April 22nd in Birmingham, Alabama, and the focus is The Great Reset. We've got a great lineup including Michael Rechtenwald, Alan Mendenhall, Jonathan Newman, and a reporter from 1819 News, Amy Beth Shaver. Uh, they're going to be talking about the plans of the Davos elite and what Alabama is doing to fight back against it. It's going to be a great event. Then on May 20th in Reno, Nevada, we have an event dedicated to property, civilization, culture, featuring some Mises and suit heavyweights. The lineup includes Tom DeLorenzo, David Gordon, and Bill Anderson. We always love seeing our audience at these events. It's a great time to network, talk with like-minded people. You won't want to miss these. Find more at Mises.org events and check out our full schedule of events coming up. This is the Human Action Podcast, where we debunk the economic, political, and even cultural myths of the days. Here are your hosts, Jeff Deist and Dr. Bob Murphy. Welcome back to another episode of the Human Action Podcast, joined as always by my co-host, Dr. Bob Murphy. How are you doing today, Bob? I'm doing all right, Jeff. How are you? Well, as I'm sure some of our viewers and listeners have heard, I am actually departing the Mises Institute for a new job. This may, in fact, be my last Human Action Podcast. Not sure if I will appear as a guest in the future, but nonetheless, it's in good hands. Dr. Murphy is going to continue the show, uh, find lots of great guests whom you should suggest to him, and also potentially another co-host down the road. But Bob, I just was thinking last night about this final show, for me anyway, and I was looking back over the previous Human Action Podcast. It actually started about eight years ago, back in 2015. Uh, Clay, our producer, and I started what was then called the Mises Weekends Podcast. This is Mises Weekends with your host, Jeff Dice. Podcasting was a very different animal back then, uh, and we had lots of different guests, lots of noteworthy guests on a lot of, I would say, socio-political, Austrian, libertarian-type topics. Uh, and then as we evolved into the Human Action Podcast, it sort of came to me that first there were too many podcasts, mm -hmm. certainly too many political and commentary podcasts, and that we needed to do something that was really purely Austrian because there are some econ podcasts, but there aren't really any hardcore, pure Austrian econ podcasts, at least not shows of any discernible size. So that was when we changed the name from Mises Weekends to the Human Action Podcast. And Clay will certainly remember this. There was a period where I said, hey, look, why don't we do books? Why don't we tackle the biggest, baddest books in the Austrian canon? Because uh, that way we will distinguish ourselves from any other podcast just by the sheer substance of the show itself, as opposed to just sort of opining or talking. And second of all, it'll be like a Cliff's Notes for the various books. You know, we'll, we'll read them. Some of them are, are, were so big that we had to do multi-stage uh, delivery. We had to have multiple shows for, for particular books like Human Action, Man, Economy, and State. And we said, well, we'll walk through these books, and one of two things will happen. Either people won't read the book, but they'll know the basics from having listened to the podcast as sort of a cheat sheet, or number two, the podcast will actually encourage them to go out and get the book and read it. So I hope we did a little bit of both. But Bob, I know you were a guest on some of those book review shows. Yeah. And I do remember that I, th I thought it was interesting that you were, you know, taking that tack of, of, of tackling books and that, you know, yes, it's a very highbrow endeavor appealing to the certain demographic that really wants to learn something. So I did appreciate that. 
Well, I don't know about highbrow, Bob, but uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll take it. But for example, Human Action, which I had read, obviously, mm-hmm. prior, not always straight through. Sometimes you read different sections, but that was something like six or eight shows, and we had different people on for the different sections. I mean, that's the kind of thing that is, is really pretty heavy lifting for a podcast-type format. And I think a lot of people over the years appreciated that, and those podcasts are still there. Uh, you know, they're, they don't have a time element to them. You can go back and listen to them anytime. But eventually, you know, after doing Human Action, Man, Economy, and State, working through a lot of other Mises' books, Socialism, Bureaucracy, Anti-Capitalist Mentality, um, you know, we did some shows on Praxeology, uh, both on Mises and Hoppe. Uh, we did a lot of shows on Rothbard's canon. I mean, we went through the Great Depression. We went through Four New Liberty, The Ethics of Liberty, uh, obviously, man, economy, and state, as I mentioned, you know, at some point, uh, you have an audience that's pretty narrow, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people who are just interested in in these particular books. And especially if you have a book that takes up multiple shows, you have to have a listener who's kind of already invested to stay with that. So that was a challenge. But really, ultimately, what what brought that to an end was just after a few years, just having to read or reread those books week in and week out to prepare for the show, it just cut too much into my time and other duties. So eventually uh, we sort of loosened it up again and went back to the format where really where you started as co-host. So that's the human action podcast as we think about it today. And I'm just trying to think who for myself were were some of the most noteworthy guests over the years. Uh, You know, there's been some great ones. Obviously I think Jim Grant stands out. Mm -hmm just for his depth and breadth of knowledge. And, and now Jim Grant is actually highbrow. I think we can apply that, <laughs> right, that right. Uh, moniker to him. Uh, but, uh, you know, I hope people benefited from the show. I hope they got something out of it. And I think it fills a needed gap. There, there really is a huge amount of economic ignorance out there. And to the extent there are podcasts, uh, you know, in sort of the fin-twit, DeFi sphere, uh, none of them are really Austrian that I can think of offhand. Yeah, I think you're right. And, uh, and again, we don't, I'm sure we're offending a bunch of people. And, you know, we know, guys, that some of you have your sort of niche things. And I've been a guest on many of your shows. We, we understand there are, but just talking like mainstream stuff that people, at, you know, CNBC or whatever might come across that, yeah, there aren't too many that are explicitly Austrian that I can think of. Um, and it's, and you're right. Those, but those book ones you did too, Jeff. I, I do think like that's there's going to be longevity there, right? So those are classics that people want. So yes, maybe if you didn't have the the highest ratings the weekend after it came out, but still people will be going to those 20, 30 years down. Because I remember that was one of the things the first time I went to the Mises Institute when I was in grad school. You know, I had read Human Action cover to cover by that point, but just hearing other people who had read it and getting up and talking about it that really helped it click. So I, 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 you know, don't underestimate the importance of that for people who are working through these classic texts to then hear, you know, you had experts come on and talk about it. Like that really does just help guide people and make sure, oh yeah, okay. So yeah, my take on that chapter was okay. Or, oh wow, geez, I didn't even get what Rothbard was saying there. Okay. Well, I find human action a lot easier than man economy and state. Um, really? Maybe it's the writing style. Maybe it's just more philosophical, more based in logic you know, Rothbard has a very different style, but those books were never easy for me to get through. Uh, I was introduced to Rothbard, fortunately, just by sheer happenstance in the 90s. Uh, so I, I became aware of him at that time, although I didn't really understand uh, his importance as an economist. And then just a couple of years later, 
he passed away. But yeah, this is tough stuff to get through. But I feel like we covered a lot of other great books, too. Mm -hmm. We did a lot of one-off shows on books by like by Guido Holzman, for example. Uh, we did we did a great show on um, Rothbard's The Betrayal of the Right. You know, we did that with Tom Woods, who had written a big introduction to that. And mm -hmm. that was, you know, that was that was really my introduction to the old right and understanding the divisions between National Review and some of the other conservatives and understanding, uh, you know, you can draw a thread, I think, from the old right uh, to the Mises Institute today. I mean, through figures like Mencken and Albert J. Nock, uh, you know, that when Republicans were good. <laughs> uh, right. So that that I think was interesting. And I think that, you know, everything is cyclical. But I think today, in part because of the legacy of all these great books, I think the Mises Institute stands as really the current incarnation, along with maybe Chronicles Magazine, of that old right tradition. Now, obviously, that, that's not the only thing the Mises Institute stands for, but to the extent it still has a home, mm -hmm. I think it is with us in Auburn. So, so that appeals to me a lot. But um, Well, can I just add on that? Because this is something, too, that you know maybe it's obvious to, to you because you knew about this, I think, probably earlier in your life than I did in mine. But yeah, me growing up and learning about free market economics through the channel of, you know, American conservatives that, you know, in terms of like, as opposed to those liberals, like the, you know, the people on NPR or whatever, like using the terms in the, you know, the, the 1980s sense of what those words meant at that time, like Rush Limbaugh, you know, like that's what I thought. Oh, he's a conservative. I like Rush. And then sure. I start reading Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams, and get it. So coming from that lens, yeah, I kind of just assumed like, oh yeah, right wingers who know how the free market works are also really strong on military defense, and mm -hmm. you know, all those those pansy Democrats are the ones that are anti-war and whatever. And don't you know how the? And so when you realize like how naive, even as I'm just trying to tell you this now, it sounds so ridiculous to say, oh yeah, the Democrats are against war, and the you know, and the and the Republicans. Uh, you know, if you're for free markets, you got to be for a big military maintained by the U.S. federal government. Like, I, it sounds so ridiculous, but yet that's what you would, might think growing up like in the late sure. 80s and getting, getting politically aware. So, yeah. So the fact that the Institute kept alive that tradition of, well, no, there was a time when actual conservatives thought the U.S. government should mind its own business and not go across oceans to go bomb people. That's sort of, you know, uh, uh, odd to people to hear that kind of talk. And let's not forget that the Mises Institute was very out front in opposing the Iraq war. And that was a real schism on the right. In other words, George W. Bush was president. Tom DeLay was speaker of the House. You know, Dick Cheney, uh, John Ashcroft, John Woo. I mean, that was that was really a time where Red America showed its worst side. Mm -hmm. And during that period, Lou Rockwell wrote a book called Red State Fascism. Uh, and so the Mises Institute was steadfast, and that's before my time. I'm not taking any credit for that. Mm -hmm. But the Mises Institute lost some fans and undoubtedly some donors for opposing that war. But, it, you know, there are some things I think worth burning political capital on just for the, the principle involved. And I would say the same thing about COVID restrictions and lockdowns, which a lot of people on the libertarian side really embarrassed themselves with, I think, over the past uh, three years. So that that's a, a feather in our cap, certainly. But what, I guess what strikes me having, you know, going back through some of these books that we did, uh, and I should mention, we did a multi-episode uh, series on Hoppe's Democracy, The God That Failed. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of different participants in that. But uh, so that was very popular. And that's still a popular book. But what struck me is that I think the discussions and the interest in anarcho-capitalism 
I think those have sort of peaked and receded. I want to say that that was really, you know, somewhere in that 2008 to 2012, really the Ron Paul era when the old Mises.org forums, you know, if, you know, nobody uses forums on websites anymore, but those forums were quite uh, vociferous at the time. And that was a real debate, you know, the idea of, of society completely without the state. You wrote, you, you know, Bob, you've written on that with your chaos theory book and otherwise, I mean, you've done a lot of speeches and, and, and you've made the case for pure privatization of, uh, you know, the, the judicial function in society, uh, the police function and the, you know, the national defense function or defense, whatever you want to call it. Uh, so that that used to interest and animate me quite a bit, I think, personally. But I think that's fallen away. I think you can sort of feel that in the air that people have people have considered that and, and some people accept it. Some people reject it as you know crazy or foolhardy, of course. Well, but it's not really the debate in front of us anymore. I guess none of us really expected the degree to which maybe starting around 2015 ish with Brexit and Trump. Uh, you know, how quickly uh, things would deteriorate in the United States in terms of discourse, in terms of political comedy, in terms of the red and blue state divide, just in terms of that very nasty politicization of everything. And I think the Mises Institute has had to shift a bit and adapt to that new reality. And and so I, I was certainly one of those ANCAPs who even maybe 10 to 15 years ago would have said, oh, you know, uh, some some traffic cop or some DMV clerk has more power over you than Google because they can yeah. pull you over or, mm-hmm. you know, whereas Google, your relationship with Google is voluntary. Uh, okay. Uh, you know, fast forward to today though, when we've seen what Michael Rechtenwald calls governmentalities, we've seen this nexus of corporate and state power. So I'm not sure. And I hope the show, the human action podcast reflects this, but uh, I'm not sure that libertarians were prepared for the degree, the, the rapidity with which uh, the the United States and the West would embrace fascism. Yeah, I agree with everything. You you had a lot packed in there. Um, just to respond to some of those comments, you, you're right. So as as you say, I, I was very much involved in those debates of you know anarchism versus anarcho capitalism proper, and that doesn't I don't get all worked up about that stuff anymore. And I think there's at least two things going on. So one is back then. Like that was, you were real radical and bold and people are like, what are you out of your mind? And now people are, the things people are arguing about now are so much crazier than back. Like now you say, hey, I think the government should privatize you know, who owns nuclear weapons. That's nothing, you know, for people to say, no, I think, you know, a, a guy should be able to say I'm a woman and go in the girl's locker room in high schools. And that's what we're, you know, which is in a sense yes. way more shocking to yes. me than <laughs> to just say, should the military be privatized? Um, and then and also because of, like you said, that I think your allusion to Brexit and whatnot, like as, as you know, Jeff, I'm big on saying well, that I think Texas should be its own country. And so because that to me is a much more practical thing that we can talk about. As opposed to, hey, what if, you know, there was a worldwide Rothbardian regime or so, you know, like that's just not going to happen anytime soon. And so, yeah, it's kind of nice to talk about, but it's like, would uh, the Enterprise beat the Millennium Falcon in a fight or something? You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I'll have a debate there, but it's not really relevant to the real world right now. So um, so there's there is all that uh, as well, I think. And, and you're right. I just like you, I also would have been one saying let's say at least 15 years ago, maybe 10 years ago that, yeah, Google has no real power. Everything. It's a, it's a big corporation. It's, it's voluntary, blah, blah, blah. Or if it's not, 
the problem is the state and just limit the state power and then the private corporations can't do anything to you. And now that that does seem a bit just kind of obtuse, especially if it's, you know, the people who own the big corporations, especially like banks and whatnot that are funding the political campaigns and deciding who are the people that are in office and staffing those positions five years from now. So it seems kind of silly to just point the figure at the people that in many cases were handpicked by the, you know, the private special interests that were saying, no, no, it's not them. Don't look at them. That's free market, baby. So. Well, and we should forget that, that we should not forget that things have evolved. I mean, when I was being introduced to libertarian ideas in the late 80s and early 90s, my older brother was getting Reason magazine. And at mm -hmm. the time, you know, edgy stuff was like uh, the, the mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Smoke, says, let's legalize marijuana. I mean, that was edgy, <laughs> cutting edge stuff. Or when people said we shouldn't have taxpayer funded stadiums, you know, mm -hmm. that was sort of the level of of libertarian analysis at the time. I mean, obviously Rothbard was already Rothbard by then, but but in you know, as, as I came to think of it, and and when you fast forward to today and just the political landscape, Daniel McCarthy, I know, uh, at ISI has made this criticism that sometimes libertarianism seems ill-equipped to an answer some of the big questions of the day. For example, the the real question of the 20th century was very broadly in the West anyway, socialism versus capitalism. Mm -hmm. Right. That was the question. And so most most people on the left would say, well, capitalism won. And a lot of people on the right, you know, or people like me would say, well, I'm not so sure. I mean, we have a we have a very we basically social democracy, which is a halfway measure towards full socialism won. So that, you know, obviously that depends on your perspective. But that doesn't feel like the 21st century question anymore socialism versus capitalism. It seems like people are dug in to their particular mm -hmm. viewpoint on that. And the, and the 21st century question is more who decides, in other words, at, at what level and at what, you know, what degree of centralization or decentralization are we going to have to accept um, as opposed to persuading left progressives uh, who are arguing about uh, trans bathrooms to accept Rothbard. Yeah. And maybe the way I would put it is like, I think if the libertarian people, including me from, you know, the year 2000 could have glimpsed and seen, you know, been transported quickly to the year 2050 and we're walking around and what you would see is, you know, there'd be a lot of, you know, some of the technology would amaze us. Obviously we'd be, you know, oh, wow, this is great. But on the other hand, there would be things that I think I would look at with horror and it would kind of be like, oh, but that's a private company's policies that are doing that. And yeah, if you go up high enough in the chain, there's some government, some state somewhere like the Chinese, whatever, Eurasian polity or something, <laughs> uh, People's Party of that group that are technically leaning on a few of the people to make that the company's private policy decision. But strictly speaking, most of what I would see that would horrify me would probably be nominally a private sector outcome. And, and, and so that wouldn't make, mean it was right. I think it would just show that my, the framework that I was using in the year 2000 to analyze the world was not really, didn't right. fit very well by the year 2050. Well, given that, what do you think ought to be the focus of the Mises Institute and, and also tangentially this podcast going forward? In other words, given the scarcity of time and resources and money and manpower, mm -hmm. uh, what, what should the Mises Institute's role be going forward? 
Well, I'll I'll say for the podcast, right? Because okay. <laughs> yeah, it's it's um it's I'm doing subsidiarity, right? Even here, um, okay. that I, I I think that yeah, the the podcast like right now, especially because the banking sector is so rele- relevant to you know to regular people's lives right now, and I think that's the avenue through which a lot of this stuff is gonna transform very quickly. I I'm not saying it. It, it should just be this, but I think a big component, certainly what I want to do in terms of, you know, my position as an Austrian economist that some people in the public listen to and uh, is to, yeah, take the the Misesian insights of money and banking and sort of bring them into, a, you know, a, the digital age and, and communicate that stuff to the public so they understand, you know, some basic like inflation, but the merits of 100% reserve banking or what causes the business cycle and the dangers now I would say of a central bank digital currency and uh, you know the importance of sound money things mm-hmm. like that that that's so a lot of bread and butter old school Austrian stuff you know Mises in 1912 a lot of those themes I think are actually it's a cliche to say it's more important now than ever but it actually is or at least than it has been in you know 30 years ago I would say well, I think there's a couple of ways that the Mises Institute and this podcast in particular could distinguish itself uh, from other shows, for example. And first is to talk about the cultural consequences mm-hmm. of fiat money and, you know, the ramifications through society, which are often hard to trace or draw directly. But that's the goal or the role of economists is to show us the unseen. Right. I mean, that's very difficult. But nonetheless, that's what we want from social scientists to help us understand the trade-offs involved. And I know people like, you know, Holzman and Safety Namus are really good at talking about how, you know, we get fiat medicine, fiat science, fiat education, fiat mm-hmm. culture, even fiat social mores. So I think that's a very important point because the Mises Institute doesn't shy away from issues of culture or family or religion or, the, you know, the, the more civilizational type questions. We don't have to be narrow um, in, in our approach. But the other thing is that I think only the Mises Institute really is, at least as an organization, really stands for the idea that it's it's not just central banking as practice. It's just that central banking per se is impossible, that it is inherently political or becomes in- political, and, and that the idea that we can have, in effect, sort of a Politburo making decisions about money supply or interest rates or uh, swaps or whatever it might be, uh, asset purchases, you know, that, that there's just no good way to run this. And so even a lot of our, our uh, people on the libertarian side of things have been wrong uh, about, uh, you know, their reform ideas for central banking. And I think increasingly uh, free bankers, at least of, of a variety, are feeling defensive in the wake of the Silicon Valley Bank fallout and some of the other fallouts. And I think it's, you know, Joe Salerno says in, in, a, in an article that I can recall vaguely that, you know, well, you know, free banking's fine if, but if you, if what you mean by that is a currency school free banker. Uh, I think that's what Salerno termed himself. And that's, that's when free banking is truly disciplined by the marketplace and is not basically leveraging off a fiat system. Uh, so I think that's an important distinction. And I think the idea of not only sound money, which is very, very important, not just economically, but culturally, as I mentioned, but sound banking, sound money storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, are, you know, that, that sounds awfully old fashioned, both of those things. That sounds like the 1800s, but uh, they might become very important in the, in the 21st century. Yeah, and I have to just amplify um, 
something that uh, uh, Associate Scholar of the Mises Institute, Peter St. Ange, said. I had a conversation with him. I don't know that it came up, Jeff, because I, I had him as a guest when uh, maybe it was even like literally the last episode or two when you, you couldn't be with us. I don't know that it came up there, but then I was talking to him separately and he brought it up just could we talk about 100% reserve banking and how could, and it sounds like this big thing and all oh, you have to lobby and he just made the simple observation that well no it would just take a simple you know rule change or or even just a tweak of how it's enforced that like what if if a if a customer went to a commercial bank and wanted to open up a, you know a checking account that was going to be fractional and reserve that they just had to kind of fill out a thing just to, a suitability requirement just to make sure just like if you want to open up an account you know and and trade put options or something they kind of you know make you do something just to kind of show you know what kind of the basic what you're doing just as a, as a check and that so because because his point was that yeah if you ask people do you think the bank takes your checking account deposits and puts them in the vault with your name on it most people probably say no they don't do that but then if you ask them you know more sophisticated like you know do you, do you think the bank has your money if you need it or something or you know would you be upset if they it's I think if you ask just a few more questions, it's pretty clear that the public's notions about what actually is going on is is not quite right. And so, you know, it was it was just a simple point like that to say that there's there's real world applications. And this isn't merely just us doing science fiction and describing, you know, some Martian colony where the banks are 100 percent reserve. Like this stuff is real, especially now with easy, you know, technology improvements. It's it's more practical to try to do some of this stuff and implement it, at least just to have an option. That's the thing. It's not that we have to reform the entire system, but just to make it as a viable option. Cause you know, you and I have talked about this, Jeff, it's it, the, the sort of free banker response of, well, nothing's stopping you right now. No, actually there are things stopping it right now. Like there are institutional barriers, decisions that the fed has made, like not giving access to certain applicants to their network and such that makes it impractical for a viable 100% reserve bank to emerge right now, you know, in the in the current environment. And so things like that, that, yeah, I, th I think it is becoming more relevant stuff that was just more, more of an academic debate within the Austrian school 10 years ago is now a lot more relevant for real people. Like we just there's, you know, people in congressional testimony asking bureaucrats, like, is fractional reserve banking sound or something? You know, like mm -hmm. that's anyway. Well, I think if you follow Per Byland on Twitter, he's he's very adept at making the point that, that that there's this kind of nonsensical idea that theory and application are wholly separate and can never be reconciled. You know, uh, he he's excellent at making the point that theory is, is is how we know everything. I mean, theory is how we approach the world and deal with the data th that's out there. So I think that's that's important. I think we're going to find that. Uh, Austrian principles are proven correct in, mm -hmm. in the coming decade. I think we're going to have a rough time uh, for our economy, for banks, et cetera. So, Bob, uh, before we wrap up, do you have any thoughts about future guests or anything else you'd like to discuss? Well, I do certainly want to discuss your book. So that <laughs> maybe we'll have guests that talk about your book. But can you you got this new book, A Strange Liberty, that has recently dropped and do you maybe want to just tell the listeners a bit about uh, its well, origins? It's an anthology. I think Clay can show the graphic while we speak here. It's it's available at Mises.org if you go to the bookstore. Uh, it's also, uh, I believe, just in softcover. It's also available on Amazon. I think there are some hardcovers left there. They cost a little bit more. So essentially, 
I, I've been working on a theme for, for a long time, which is that we, you know, it's too late for politics mm-hmm. in the United States and in the West, that we're, we're beyond being able to vote our way out of this. And I think that reflects itself in, in our political landscape. So that's the title, both of an essay and also the book, Politics Drops Its Pretenses, which what I mean by that is that it wasn't that long ago, certainly within the memory of people alive today, that, I mean, politicians were hated. And I don't want to say that there was some golden time where po- politics was more above board or less seedy or less corrupt or anything like that, because that's simply not true. But at least for average Americans and, the, and their relationship with the political world and with the, the media, things were very different in our grandparents' or our parents' time. I mean, I, I remember my dad telling me, you know, people would have a, uh, a picture of JFK mm-hmm. in their home, like above their fireplace. Uh, if you walk into somebody's house today and they have a picture of Joe Biden above their fireplace, uh, I, I think you better you better get you know get them the help that they need. <laughs> let's just say so. Things have gotten very very spooky in the sense that politicians no longer pretend that they want to represent the entire electorate or the entire population. Now they're quite open about wanting to vanquish their political opponents. And right. that's different. That's changed. That's changed just in my lifetime. I, in, the, in other words, they've dropped this pretense that democracy, well, it creates a compromise down the middle. We have the far left and the far right. And, you know, n- none of those crazies on the outside get everything they want. But down the middle, you know, we compromise. And we all get a little bit of what we want. And, and we're finding out that that's not true at all. So-called democracy, at least it, mass democracy is practiced at the national level in a country the size of the U.S. It just produces this permanent bureaucratic class, this managerial state that's totally unelected, that's got union protection, that can't be bounced no matter who you vote in. And as we saw with Trump, I mean, it it scarcely matters who you elect as president. So, you know, politics is no longer pretending to be at all win-win, like as we conceive of the marketplace. It's just a pure zero-sum game uh, with a lot of nastiness involved now. Like when Biden made that speech where he was behind that really red backdrop mm-hmm. and it looked like something out of Nuremberg or whatever. I mean, that's that's basically saying, you know, um, we intend to to go a certain direction. And if you don't like it too bad because we're winning and there's more of us at the ballot box, um, you know, that's that's not a healthy place for a society to be. And I think you and I, Bob, would agree that, that you know, America is far too large. It needs to break up into some constituent parts progressives don't believe in that because they don't want to give away any turf if they think mm. they're going to win the whole thing. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, that's that's the theme of the book. It, it goes into the immigration and borders debate. I show try to show both sides of that. Uh, it goes into a lot of what's happening at the Fed and with central bankers. In other words, these people are not the magicians or the alchemists we thought they were. It, it turns out that they're kind of groping around in the dark. And it goes a lot into the Trump phenomenon, the Brexit phenomenon, the idea of decentralization and secession as really the only nonviolent antidote to to what we're facing now. And again, you know, I would say that there are progressives on the left and the right who insist on a, you know, a universal worldview uh, that there's one true faith and that's got to apply everywhere in politics. And, And that's that's, you know, a form of religiosity, you might say. But nonetheless, um. It's an anti-political book, I hope, mm-hmm. and I hope uh, people get some enjoyment out of it and, um, and and understand the perspective that 
whatever it is that gets us out of this, whether that's something more at the local level or the state level, or whether that's something that entrepreneurs create or that technology assists us with, you know, it's, it's going to come f- far from outside Washington, D.C. It's not going to come through politics and the U.S. federal government in terms of its dollar, its debts, and especially, this is the worst thing of all, is its entitlement promises. Um, you know, the, the Washington, D.C. is too far gone. And our, our approach now has to be to turn our backs on it and start trying to create a new reality uh, from the bottom up. We Just a, a real quick one response to what you said, and then a more, more substantive reply is uh, you, you mentioned – Biden, you know, when he was given that speech, was that what was that? Was that a State of the Unis or an inaugural? What where where there was the red backdrop? I forget what the occasion was. No, it wasn't. It wasn't a State of the Union because that's held in the. I, uh, in I didn't mean State chamber. of the Union. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, in any event, I don't recall either. Yeah. In any event, um, it was. I remember like when that, those iconic images were flying around Twitter the day, you know, the, the day after it happened. And a lot of like libertarian types and right wingers were were showing it and saying things like, uh-oh, some uh, lighting tech is about to lose his job. And I was just astonished that you think they would put him out there with all that lighting and stuff, not on purpose? Like, they didn't realize what how that was coming off? That wasn't deliberate? Like, I mean, it's kind of... Sh- like, so it was funny, and maybe a lot of them, they were just kidding, and they knew it was deliberate, and they were just trying to make a dumb joke. But still, like, I just... Mm-hmm. It really just showed the divide. Like, even among people who, you know, oh, I believe in lower taxes, and da-da-da, like, there's... I don't know if you've seen it, Jeff, but there, there's a, now an argument because Dave Smith made a remark about how uh, there's many ways in which we have less freedoms than his grandfather did or something. And of course, you know, everyone's bringing up, oh, so you don't want women to vote and have checking accounts and all that stuff. But beyond that, they were saying this is the freest time for Americans ever, you know, and it just mm-hmm. so it it is. Ama- and these are among people that you know, probably agree with us on a lot of stuff about, you know, free trade's great and, you know, inflation's bad. So it it is interesting to see that divide. Um, So as far as your book, can you just tell, because I think one of the phrases that you have popularized is post-persuasion America. So for people, and one of your essays talks about that. So can you just explain, like, what, what do you mean by that? Well, I, I believe the phrase was coined, maybe, or at least popularized by Steve Bannon. Okay. Who is one of the architects of Trump's victory in 2016. I was watching him on a PBS documentary uh, called America Divided. And they had people like Robert Reich and all these different things. But they had Steve Bannon. And he, he was talking about this idea that people are largely beyond persuasion, which seems funny because we have this little cell phone in our pockets that has basically the sum total of human history and knowledge mm-hmm. <laughs> a few clicks away. And so that, uh, given, given the fact that access to information and various arguments, and, and for instance, Austrian economics, it's never been easier to go read Austrian economics for free online. So access to information has never been easier. So in, at least in theory, we should be more open-minded as a result, or more likely to change our minds as a result, because you know we, it's easy to get an opposing viewpoint, or it's easy to get facts which disabuse us of our own viewpoint. But Bannon says, no, 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 it's going the opposite direction. People are digging in more than ever simply because there's so much white noise coming at them. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that. I thought that was an interesting turn of phrase, and the idea that you know when when everything seems 
unstable and shifting underneath your feet and where there's just so much media, you know, 24-hour cable news and the political jargon and, and of course, all of social media. Uh, we know so much more about all the trouble around the world than, than our grandparents did that we actually begin to sort of shut down our thinking and our open-mindedness to, to opposing arguments and dig in our heels. So I thought, I thought that was a, a pretty interesting thing. And I thought that, that he had summarized that correctly if we look at how politics is actually operating these days. Well, I think another element of that too is that for people who really care about a certain topic, they can go now find PhD, like 50 PhDs who agree with them and go read all mm -hmm. their stuff. And so they, it's not merely like, yeah, that, that's just my gut level thing. Like they can sit there and have a two hour debate with somebody about it. it like whether it's climate change or evolution or, you know, and I've mm -hmm. looked at those more so the climate change, the evolution stuff. I was more of a dabbler, but the, the people who hold the unorthodox view and are dismissed as anti-science by the people who hold the orthodox view, it's, you know, I mean, you can say they're wrong, of course, but, and that they disagree with the, you know, the professional award-winning scientists in those fields, sure. But they're, they're not saying, I don't trust science. What they're saying is, well, no, if you actually look, the evidence says blah, 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 and there's this thing, and that contradicts this hypothesis. So they're not making anti-scientific argument. They're actually saying that, no, the, you know, the conventional wisdom is overlooking these things, and they have a whole wealth of statistics and, and whatnot to, that they try to marshal coming from people who have PhDs in the relevant fields. And so it, and it, because it's so much easier to find those people now with the Internet. And so it, it is an interesting... Um, element of, of, of all this. So can I ask you though, Jeff, so what is, is, does that kind of dovetail? Like if it's post persuasion America, is that why just, you know, more federalism or uh, nullification or even outright secession perhaps of certain regions is really the only solution because we're not going to just talk it out and come to a mutual mm -hmm. consensus. Like we just kind of have to separate or at least. Uh, I think that's, I think that's mm -hmm. entirely true. And I think if you look at politics today, neither side, so to speak, is really trying to build consensus anymore. I mean, we know what the left thinks of abortion. The left knows what the right thinks of abortion. I mean, right. that, that's just an irreconcilable difference. And so it really becomes about force, who is going to prevail, who is going to control the apparatus of government and make the laws, and especially control the enforcement of those laws. The enforcement's far more in, important than the laws on the books. And, you know, we see that all the time. That's anarcho-tyranny, the idea that uh, some people have to follow the rules and some people don't, and that government itself can be anarchic. In other words, not follow its own rules while uh, making us follow the, the rules to a T, you know, giving us a ticket for jaywalking or whatever it might be. So I think, I think that's absolutely true that um, some kind of soft secession is already happening. It's inexorable. Uh, we, you know, we, we saw what happened this week in Wisconsin and Chicago with elections. I think that's going to accelerate and intensify. And so that's fine with me. Let, let the 50 states be more of a laboratory of ideas as originally intended. And the extent to which we can stop the federalization of everything, I think, is important. I think we ought to fight for that. And, and I think libertarians ought to learn a lesson about, the, the, you know, the, this, this, what I consider a grossly incorrect interpretation of the 14th Amendment. And that, it, you know, really no one's being served. E even our progressive friends are not being served uh, by the current situation. Can I ask you one more, Jeff, here? Uh, I'm just looking at your at the outline or the, the table of contents. And the, 
piggybacking on what you just said is some of the other essays next to the Welcome to Post-Persuasion America are what should politically vanquished people do and then the case for optimism. So can you just speak a little bit maybe that is as perhaps closing thoughts for the listeners on this? Yes, well, because being politically vanquished is better than being literally vanquished, uh, being you know put in a concentration camp or something like that. Uh, but historically... Being politically vanquished is a road potentially to a worse fate. And uh, Mises talked about this a lot. He, he really fretted about minority groups mm-hmm. in countries because he saw the old patchwork of Europe in the 1800s even when, you know, as a young man, uh, come together into these modern super states. Uh, you know, what we think of today as Germany, for example, was a patchwork. Uh, and so he was a little uneasy about that. If you go read Nation, State and Economy... And liberalism, especially, he his big concern was always political minorities. And oftentimes for him, that was linguistic. We don't think about that so much in America anymore because everybody speaks English. A lot of people speak Spanish and that's fine. Everybody, you know, it, it's, it's pretty easy. We have the luxury of not having to think about language. But in, in Europe, in Mises's day, I mean, the number of languages were, were, you know, and so if you were brought into a political arrangement by the redrawing of a border, let's say due to a war, uh, um, or some amp- imperial ambition, you know, that really affected you because, uh, you know, li- not only linguistic minorities, but ethnic minorities, whatever it might be. And so Mises was, was forever saying, you know, they, they really need to have their, you know, for democracy to function properly, they really need uh, to have the ability to, to break away and, and reorganize politically. So I think that's an undervalued uh, or underappreciated aspect of Mises, that he really was pretty decentralist because, you know, he uses some terms about universalism, which, which he actually opposed, but talks about being a citizen of the world and a cosmopolitan. And so I think some of that was misinterpreted to mean that he, that he thought we just, you know, would be better with one giant super state. And I, I, don't, I don't believe that's what he meant. You can argue or debate that. And so I think that's, it's very important that politically vanquished people begin, I think, looking at what they might do. And, and so when I talked, I remember that talk very clearly. It was in Newport Beach, California around 2015 or thereabouts. The case for optimism was just that we know, and we've seen since then, this is accelerating, that, that the federal Leviathan can't, just can't do what it promises. And so Atlas is going to shrug. Uh, we, we, you know, we can't even fix minor issues like the Jones Act, uh, you know, which everybody knows should be fixed, uh, much less remake Afghanistan um, Mm -hmm. into a Jeffersonian democracy or whatever. So, uh, you know, Uncle Sam increasingly is not going to be able to do the things he even purports to be able to do, like control the money, pay entitlements, at least in a meaningful sense, uh, win wars, whatever it might be. And so I think there's there's a huge case for optimism out there simply because people are organizing and understanding this. They're coalescing around this. And it's an uneasy time. It's it's painful to think that we've really been sold a bill of goods, especially in the late 20th century. But nonetheless, I think empowerment starts with honest reflection. And so people are getting together more at the local level. People are looking at their businesses. People are trying to uh, armor up their, 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 you know, financial lives, their family lives, their home lives. And, and, uh, you know, maybe get more engaged or active locally. So I, I think all that um, makes the case for long-term optimism, even if there's some short-term pain along the way. So folks, let me 
push Jeff's book because he's too modest to do it. So it's A Strange Liberty. The subtitle Politics Drops Its Pretenses. He's got a forward by Paul Gottfried and an introduction by Tom DiLorenzo. Uh, I highly recommend it. There's a lot of fascinating ideas in there. And it's, you know, Jeff is his own guy, right? It's it's not just parroting the views of other people. It's, it really is. Like he's got his own perspective and makes the case for it well. So I, I highly recommend the book. Well, Thanks so much, Bob. We, we, the show, will be back with another episode of the Human Action Podcast. Bob will move forward both solo and with some new guests. And I look forward to uh, checking that out every week. So, Bob, have a great weekend. Ladies and gentlemen, we'll see you soon. Check back next week for a new episode of the Human Action Podcast. In the meantime, you can find more content like this on Mises.org. <laughs>